You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. My name is Chris Spangle. It is so great to have you here today, and we're talking about what some of you may find an inflammatory topic. And uh, one of the nicest, best people I know, great Christian man who just pisses everybody off with his existence for no reason. Uh, well, no, not no reason. Sometimes you... you uh, you Definitely can be sharp. not no reason. Yeah, no, sometimes you can be an, uh, an a-hole like me. I get it. There's, It's just yeah. Ryan Lindsay. There is just so much BS a person can take. <laughs> uh, yeah, that it, you don't have to make excuses for me. Uh, I, <laughs> I, won't. I am who I am. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I feel it too. I mean, and so today we want to we talk about Christian nationalism because – uh, as to Christians who, like, I'm definitely more right than than Ryan on a lot of things, uh, but I appreciate his perspective, and he's helped me kind of see um, what I found to be, like, troubling but didn't have the language for, uh, and that is this strain of Christianity that is, like, Franklin Graham, and, like, why are all these people supporting Donald Trump when he's so clearly not a religious person or doesn't seem to really have like the hallmarks of a Christian person. I mean, you can't say one way or the other about anybody, but the, the fruit doesn't seem to be uh, there, um, you know, and he doesn't really seem to have an understanding of the gospel. So, you know, it's like, obviously Trump is gone, so it's not too much about Trump, but moving forward, there seems to be this war in the church that is forming uh, David French over at the Dispatch has written a lot about this and how Christians need to rise to the moment. It's why we did a show on mercy here, because Christians can lead the way towards de-escalating the culture that we're in. And there seems to be some Christians that are hell-bent on keeping the status quo of anger towards one another. Uh, and Ryan and I, like we said, are jerks a lot of times online, but like we're... Con- I feel continually called to treat people better and uh, online in person. Uh, I don't know about you, Ryan, if you feel that same way, but like, I, I just, I sort of go, do other people have that? Like, is God calling other people sometimes to be nicer online? Because it just doesn't seem to be there. Yeah, no, I, I definitely um, am there with you. Like, I know I'm a jerk and it's one of those things where, like everybody says social media is a drug and it really is like you get that moment of euphoria, like whether you're uh, owning the conservatives or owning the libs, whatever. And then immediately afterwards, it's just like shame. I feel so and- bad. And you know what? <laughs> and you know what is so funny? People who are in the We Are Libertarians Facebook group, I have this conversation with John Ulrich weekly. <laughs> And he says the exact same thing. He's like, I feel so bad. I should, And I'm like, you should be nicer to Ryan. And then I talk to Ryan. I'm like, you should be nicer to John. John and I go to the same exact church. You know, and that's the funny thing is like three Christians who, you know, left, right, and center for libertarians, like will fight with each other and be mean to each other and then feel bad about it. And it is, that's sort of that drug uh, that, that people feel that I just, I find funny and wanted to address early on because we've had that conversation before. Yeah, yeah. Hey, John and I have uh, we've we've cooled down 
some yeah. over the past couple weeks. We're comrades now. I know. I want to have a healing episode where unity is brought between <laughs> the two of you because I just think it's important. Like I say to both of you, like we're Christians, like we should be nicer to each other. Um, and there seems to be within Christian culture this strain of people who like dating my girlfriend who comes from a Christian homeschooled background, you know, where left behind is or uh, you know, she shows me these mom groups that she's in and like the reformed pub, for instance, which I have oh. been I have been banned from uh, <laughs> because I basically started pointing out the gospel and everybody in the group got mad. And so, like, she'll sit there and she'll argue with these like very um, paternalistic men in this group or women who are even more like you're not submitting hard enough. And like they're very pro Trump and. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just, like, hard to look at the last year and go, all right, this person on my Facebook feed or these people in these Christian groups that she shows me, like, they were okay with Kyle Rittenhouse. They were okay with the death of Aubrey and George Floyd for the most part. They were okay with Donald Trump using the 82nd Airborne on protesters. They bought into the the big lie about the the end of the uh, election they bought into they were okay with the capital insurrection and at a certain point i start looking at these christians and go why don't you see what i see like why don't you look at donald trump using our symbols to gas protesters to go cynically try to pose in front of a church as a problem and i, I i'm having a hard time figuring that out I mean, and you said it's Christian nationalism. What is it, and how does that relate to some of the the people that I think a lot of Christians and and people like us are struggling watching? Yeah, um, and first off, just a disclaimer, like, we are talking about a very large group of people and, like, a large religion, so there's going to be some generalities made. Um, That's, I don't mean to, like, offend anybody. I know this doesn't apply to everybody. I just want to get that out of the way first um and then also like this is a lot like you like this is the world i grew up in so i'm not just like looking as an outsider in at it like i like these are my people Um, you grew up in missouri in the ozark yeah in the southern baptist church like i i know that these people intimately intimately um and uh so yeah just a couple disclaimers there and then so i think it's really important to understand because uh like for one thing, I don't think you can really understand um, a lot of the current moment, what's going on with the more uh, far right elements of America without understanding Christian nationalism. So this isn't something that uh, just Christians should be concerned about. Um, But at the same time, I think it's something that especially Christians should be concerned about because I think it's really easy, you know, to, um, to look at like the people who are waving their Jesus signs and storming the Capitol um, to look at them and say like, Oh, those aren't real Christians. Like they're like, I they're over there. I'm over here. Uh, I don't, but I don't think we can do that. Like they are Christians. They're a part of our religion. Like, and if we're, if Christians are honest, like the entire religion has a pretty uh, bloated history of, Think like incidents like that of Christian nationalism and such. Um, now, so the, it's, the Crusades using Christianity yeah. to support slavery, mm-hmm. using it to support Jim Crow. Yeah, yeah. So it would be nice to be able to use that excuse. They're not real Christians, but they are, and so that's why 
Christians like us, like we have to be concerned about this and address it. Um, and I, I, I think you hit on a really good point talking about the left behind books. Um, I, I think a lot of people outside of the Christian world don't understand how incredibly powerful Christian media is. Um, like it doesn't really reach a lot of people outside of that silo, but in that silo, it is like an all pervasive force. Um, when, when I converted to Christianity at 18, I didn't watch or read anything out of that bubble or listen to anything out of that bubble until 2005. So yeah. from 2002 to 2005 or six, like when I started watching the news again or listening to regular radio or reading books, like I, I realized how much of in that bubble I was because there is the idea that we, it's the Benedict option. We should be set mm-hmm. apart. We should set ourselves apart with other Christians. We should, we should not engage in the world in worldly man. Like, I think it is, it is something that non-Christians may not totally understand the influence that a lot of these radio pastors have or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, podcasts, you know, like the Stephen Furtick podcast is tops and, you know, Tony, that's why it's sort of crazy to watch people like Ravi Zacharias or James McDonald and some of these people fall in the way that they have yeah. because they it's a big deal to Christians because they hold so much power and to find out that they're so human is <clears throat> and human in bad ways often uh, are it, it it's it's sort of shaking for people like you saw it with Ted Haggard and and, you know, it's it. It, it sort of shakes these people in a way that they go, I can't even really trust Ravi Zacharias, who's accused of, like, molestation, basically. Like, really horrible things. I, I think uh, unwanted touching of adult women is the better way to put it. Um, yes. So, you know, and this is a guy that was super well-respected, that was, you know, n- not, didn't seem weird, right? Or they see Franklin Graham, I mean... Billy Graham's son supporting Donald Trump and all these pastors. And then you've got people prophesying that Donald Trump's going to win all these elections. And really what it comes down to, I think, is there is a long strain in Christianity. You know, Truman established Israel to help speed up the end times. The end times, like one of the fears of these folks is that Joe Biden will turn on Israel and that will prevent the end times from being ushered in as opposed to like looking at the worldly solution of politics as opposed to going God's timing is God's timing and humans are irrelevant, you know. And so there was like this huge freak out, right? And I'm sure you saw it that when Joe Biden took over that day, they updated <laughs> the Twitter for the Israeli embassy to include yeah. the West Bank of Gaza. And like I saw every Christian group that I'm in explode with fear. Mm hmm. Yeah, I saw that too. Um, Yeah, and that's – there definitely is like uh, a lot of – a huge fascination, almost just like a fetish with like end times prophecy and uh, politics surrounding Israel in these circles. Um, To the extent like there's people who like fervently just pray for the world to end like every day. Like they just want – (laughs) <laughs> like the book of revelation to come true literally like right now. And, um, and that's like, a, and they're trying to force that through politics. These Christian nationalists are, and that's a really scary, um, a really scary thing to do. Cause if you look at, if you take the book, a liter book of revelation, literally, 
you're looking at billions of people dying um, and they're trying to like make this happen and speed it along through politics. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just a disaster waiting to happen. And that leads to all kinds of uh, just conspiracy theories and stuff, I think really opens them up to that um, just conspiracy theories in general, because well, like uh, those books that came out, you know, a few decades ago about like 88 reasons why Jesus is coming in 88 and stuff. Just these people like spend just their entire lives pouring through, like taking clues out of nowhere and saying like, oh, look, I found a hundred reasons like to point to why this exact day is when Jesus is going to return. And then they start applying that same kind of thinking and like illogic to everything else. Like they will go through Donald Trump's tweets and it's like, oh, if you rearrange the letters this way, it actually says this message where they're just taking these totally crazy conjectures out of everything. Um, And I think a lot of it stems because of their theology, the way they look at the Bible and interpret uh, prophecy. um, And then whenever that spreads to like their politics and it just becomes cancer. Yeah, there's a and actually he just passed away. His name was Irvin Baxter. Uh, he died at 75, and he was uh, – it started in Richmond, Indiana, and so that's how I always heard it on the radio <laughs> and went to Plano, Texas. But it was – he had end-time ministries and uh, teacher of biblical prophecy, and it was based in Texas, and it basically was on all kinds of different radio shows. Like, let me see if this organization is still around. But, you know, he would take people to um, – that the, there's all kinds of tours that you can take uh, to Israel, uh, and you can like see where. I would encourage people to read the Left Behind stuff because I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of it was actually really good. Like there was a great, uh, uh, like they put together like a um, like the uh, Tribulation Squad. Or no, no, it was a, it, it's several different books, but they read really well. But there was a sound drama, like an old time radio show about it, and it was oh. it was gripping and great. And it gives you a lot of uh, insight into the stuff. The endtime dot com e n d t i m e dot com. I mean, this guy was the the king of taking, and they still do shows of taking end time prophecies and applying it. And you know, like Israel was always. I mean, it's really helps you kind of explain what's going on. And there is, uh, it's just really important to kind of understand how important Israel and the end times are in this context. Um, But let's give a definition of Christian nationalism and how is it different maybe from just like regular evangelical Christianity or are they one and the same at this point? Yeah. So I would say Christian nationalism is, uh, it's essentially like if you can understand nationalism, then you can understand Christian nationalism, but with the understanding that it's um, there's a central role. I'm trying to think. Okay, so for example, I'm just going to go straight to the Nazi example. Um, you could be a good Nazi, you could be a good brown shirt without being like a Christian person and pious and all that. Um, except for in Christian nationalism, like the Christianity and the piety is like the, the key focus of it. It's obedience Um, to the state. Yes. It's trying to build the, the kingdom of God, um, on earth, but through force and through the state and through laws and everything. 
um, essentially saying that, uh, you know, there's all these communists and Satanists and pedophiles out there and they need to be put down essentially. Um, we need to build a theocratic Christian nation on, on, uh, you know, on earth right here. And there's, there's obvious, again, not everybody, but there is a huge, um, white supremacist element to Christian nationalism as well. Um, the, like, if you, and if you don't believe me, just Google, uh, not on a work computer probably, but Google Christian identity, um, and see what comes up. Like, that's one of those things that's kind of for a long time, uh, been a dog whistle for white identity, um, like all during the civil rights era and all. Another one um, is Kenism, uh, which is a white nationalist interpretation of Christianity. And so it's anti-immigrant, Southern heritage, separatists. This is from Wikipedia, who splintered mm-hmm. off from Christian reconstructionism to advocate the belief that God's intended order is loving one's kind by separating people along tribal and ethnic lines to live in large extended family groups. And I've run in... Um, some of the Kenanists were associated with the Neo-Confederate League of the South, which had a lot of libertarians in it. And, uh, 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 and they stated that the non-white immigration invasion is the final solution to the white problem of the South. So white race genocide. So they're coming to replace you, which remember in Charlottesville, all those guys with tiki torches were marching saying they will not replace us. Can you talk about replacement replacement theory i guess you maybe you'd call it and and how that like again not every christian is a white nationalist or a christian nationalist and if you have a flag in a bible you're not a that's not what we're saying like we're saying the the more extreme elements preach this stuff and then it kind of will bleed and people will unintentionally lennon called them useful idiots you know, there are people who the coalitional instinct kicks in and they say, well, this is one of my own. Quit being mean to them. Um, and that's what dog whistles or virtue signaling are, right? Like it's it's using language that you may not know that like certain phrases have unintentional meanings, but it's you're you're softening the ground for future action. Right. So, yeah. you know. What is they will not replace us because this is a really like this is a very important idea to understand that when you understand it, you start to see it being spread in the ideas, the victimology of the right by people that have that are functionally not white supremacists, but they grab onto those ideas and kind of push that victimology, which like. Ryan as a leftist is coming to invade your suburban town and Cory Booker will be there tomorrow and they're going to make you, uh, you know, kneel before a black person and apologize for your whiteness. And then they're going to take your job. You know, how does that how does that fit into the replacement theory that canonists use? Yeah. Um, so I think there's there's definitely a. Uh a big part of Christian nationalism is looking at America's past and like idealizing it, um, saying like, Oh, America, you know, used to be this great shining city on a hill. Um, and we're not anymore. Um, and obviously they think that's a problem. Um, and so then they try to address, well, why aren't we this shining city on a hill before? And a lot of the time it boils down to what they're going to say is, 
uh, these alleged socialists and atheists and communists. Um, and they always lump those three together. And uh, <laughs> those people, they're trying to take America over and ruin it. They're anti-God. They're anti-Christ. Um, and the where the nationalism part of it really kicks in is it's saying America was a Christian nation. These people are trying to make it not a Christian nation, and it's your God-ordained mission to stop it, um, to make America great again, for example. Um, you need to stand up for America from the olden times, and every single person in Christianity has a role to play in that, um, You know, whether you're wearing a nice three-piece suit like Josh Hawley, or if you're wearing a Buffalo Viking costume, like you have a role to play in this and you're conditioned to just think that pre and again, this is where the white nationalism part comes in. It's always like America pre 1960s was great. You know, before integration, um, America was amazing and perfect. Like you'll hear, um, Oh, like whenever, when they took God out of the schools, America went to hell in a handbasket. And when that rhetoric really started to uh, be a normal phrase in Christian circles, uh, that was during the 1960s when integration was starting to happen. Um, and so it was just kind of a convenient cover. And that's uh, – you you said it, uh, useful idiots. That's it's a, It was a convenient cover for segregationists to – attacks integrating schools and they knew you know i probably can't get christians like in mass to be like oh black people shouldn't be in schools but i can make them hate the schools by making them believe that schools are teaching atheism and secularism so they make up these these lies like oh they're kicking god out of school so now you have christians attacking school and essentially being useful idiots for the segregationist um, that's an example from like that time period. And it, it kind of goes uh, – it, keep, it keeps going forward. Like you could say with – Well, but let, me, let, me, let me give one example. So the 20s mm-hmm. Klan here in Indiana, the 20s Klan in Indiana had a third of the state uh, in their membership roles. And they were big on Amer- – America first was their slogan. They were anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic. They, there weren't many blacks or Jews here in Indiana at the time, but there were a lot of Catholics who were first or second-generation Catholics. And so the concern was we don't want to have to compete with these people. And, well, what's one way to attack the, the Catholic to make them less Catholic and more American, a.k.a. Protestant? We need to start a war on Catholic schools. And so if you look at the 20s Klan in Indiana, uh, James H. Madison just wrote a great book on it. Uh, highly recommend it. He's a professor at IU. They, the, one of their missions was separation of church and state uh, uh, and schooling. Um, so the, the, the goal was basically to keep – put patriotism into schools – and they institute if you have a flag in your school in your classroom in Indiana it's because the clan passed a law in 1926 i think to put a flag in every classroom in Indiana because they felt catholics weren't putting flags in their classroom and people needed to be reminded that this was america and their allegiance was to the flag and not to the pope who they conspiratorial thought, conspiratorially the rumor was the pope had a a castle being built in Cincinnati to take <laughs> over Indiana and Ohio. 
And so Popism. So if you've ever heard stories about how Kennedy had to really like fight the anti-Catholic bias in 1960, it's because all those people were still voting and it was they had had been conditioned. And so they they did everything they possibly could to end private schooling and promote public schooling to kill off Catholic school systems. Uh, because it was indirect, it was the way that they were it, they were being indoctrinated with popism, as they called it. Uh, yeah. So, so we need obedience to the state instead of to your religion. And so they really, um, you know, that's a that's a way where a lot of people thought, oh yeah, I don't think I don't want the government involved in. Uh, I, I, I do think that that. Religion should be separated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I- I'm trying to sugarcoat it. A third of the state <laughs> is in the Klan. Most people didn't want there to be Catholic schools. They were bigoted, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. I mean, I don't think people in 1920 uh, in, in Indiana, I think we should be under no illusions that they still held white supremacist beliefs. Like, that's the right. ding on Lincoln. Like, Lincoln held white supremacist beliefs. Most Northerners did. Until Union soldiers went down south and saw slavery for themselves. And when they saw it for themselves, they said, what we see in the media does not reflect the reality of the the person who the black person in slavery. And that is Mm -hmm. what single handedly changed those letters home started to change the attitude towards freeing slaves because abolitionists were like freaks until that started happening. Um, You know, and so. These are ways in our past that some of these enabling beliefs have stuck around, that, that we can look back mm-hmm. at the past and go, oh, isn't that quaint? But there's a lot in what we're talking about today that kind of, there's ghosts of it. Yeah, definitely. So. Um, for sure. And, and I think there's also a, and that, this is kind of a, definitely a recurring theme, like Christian nationalism throughout history is uh, taking advantage of, Christian beliefs or certain Christian theologies and manipulating people that believe those into doing these terrible, perverse things or supporting these awful causes. Um, and, and I think there's definitely, sorry, my dogs are barking. That's okay. Yeah. Like immigration and not really caring that how many Christians said to you, well, if they don't want to be separated, they shouldn't come here. <laughs> I mean, that's a direct example from two years ago. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Or or I think it's definitely not as much of a problem now. Um but like a lot of the anti-LGBT laws um you know, they they were able to like the just the far right fascists were able to get Christians, a lot of Christians like on board with these terrible laws like oh, you should take their kids away. Um using just, the using the state to deny people freedom to make their own yeah. choices instead of them, Yeah, instead of persuading people. Mhm. And they were able to get them to support that by like being like, oh, look, like your scripture says that this is wrong. So you have to fight it on every front available to you. Well, not just um, that. I mean, I'm a little older than you. It was marriage itself as an institution will be destroyed. And then <laughs> what destroyed the institution was the divorce rate. And it's even in Christian circles with I'm a Christian, I've been divorced, right? Like, you know, we destroyed marriage on our own. It wasn't the yeah. gays, right? Yeah, I don't know if it's current or not, but I know as of at least like a, just a few years ago, the divorce rate in evangelical churches was higher than like non-religious people. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so there's an example. And, and as 
the family on Netflix is a great example of Christian political power, even though the documentary is sort of hilarious in the way that it tries to make them look nefarious. Like it's mm-hmm. sort of comical how biased it is against the subjects in the documentary, but it mm-hmm. does show you the, the eighties and nineties mindset of the, the Mike Pence's of the world and how they viewed using the state to control and manipulate people that they felt were enemies uh, and as libertarians, we reject using state power to force anyone to live in any way that they, they don't want to live. Like, you cannot force, just like the mask mandates, you can't force people to wear a mask because they're just not yeah. going to. You can only persuade them. And the more you try to force people, the more they reject the idea of wearing a mask. Uh, and it, it's, it's counterproductive. So it's, you have to apply... Um, these same concepts to religious uses of the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, so what, it's just, it's, I know you've prepared a lot of other points. So like, what are, what are some other things that we ought to be thinking about and watching for? Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's interesting to uh, to try to understand like what is it about uh, like American Christianity that's almost like grooming you know thousands of people into embracing this ideology of christian nationalism um and uh even just sometimes like just outright fascism like christo fascism if you want to call it that um and i think uh it's important to i think we kind of have to realign our concepts of like nationalism and fascism and all that sort of because i think a lot of people you say those words and you get this mental picture of like brown shirts marching down the streets with a gun to your head like forcing you to be a nazi um but this like christian nationalism it's almost more sort of like a uh uh like a soft authoritarianism kind of like there's you like it's in a, a fascism and authoritarianism that you choose like there's this christian protestant logic of non-compulsion to it um it's like armenian fascism i guess Mm. it's not calvinistic um but uh and i think that's really key to understanding the ideology um and it goes also back to like those christian media echo chambers like once you're in that circle like you are inevitably like okay so it's gonna happen like if you don't believe me go to a youth camp it's going to be Thursday night. Uh, you're looking forward to seeing your friends when you get home. And then all of a sudden there's emotional music playing and somebody telling you this could be your last chance to avoid going to hell. Right. Next thing you know, you're down at the altar um, and you're a Christian. And instead of looking forward to seeing your friends, you're dreading seeing your friends or you're thinking about all the ways to proselytize to them and convert them and save them. Um, and then from there, you have two choices. You're going to either eventually read Leo Tolstoy and become a Christian anarchist, or you're going to read Jerry Falwell and become a Christian nationalist. All right, so then you're not going to simplifying read, it. Y- y- but. You're gonna, <laughs> yeah, I mean the um, the it, it's networks of power, right? And it's mm-hmm. every every human group, um, regardless of political, religious ideology. You know, people once they have become. You know, the mainline churches, Methodists, uh, Church of Christ, I mean, the, a lot of these mainline Episcopalian, they they, ha- they held a lot of political power through the end of the Civil War, through the, 
you know, really the 60s, 70s, 80s, they held a lot of political power. And so people don't want to give up that political and religious power. And then Billy Graham comes along and starts basically the evangelical movement, and they become political power. And a lot of people right now who run megachurches don't want to give up that political and uh, religious power. And now there's the more emergent church or the, the you know, the, the, pa- the celebrity pastor, essentially. They've become kind of the, the power, and it's based a lot on baptism or charismatic churches. And then they'll fall, and they won't want to give up political and uh, now— the thing about somebody like a Matt Chandler down at the Village Church or, you know, frankly, my mega church on the south side of Indianapolis, Mount Pleasant Christian Church, they canceled their 4th of July services. And the, the church that I go to seems to be very aware of the seduction of a lot of these ideologies in Donald Trump and has taken steps to respectfully push back on the congregation and try to call people out of um, – unempathetic, hard-hearted political stances or religious stances. Uh, I've seen that in uh, the biggest church planting ministry through the Village Church and Matt Chandler do somewhat of the same and and basically say what you just said, which is people who were frightened into converting, that is not the way to do it. We should be yeah. calling people to live a better, more empathetic life in the love of Christ. I mean, that and so there need there seems to be an awareness uh there was one charismatic pastor i sent it to you this guy like has been up donald trump's behind for for a long time and prophesied that he would win and then when he didn't win he basically was ruined and shamed and uh had the humility to go i was wrong and here's the reasons why and i need to be restored so people have trust in my prophecy again yeah yeah and i think that's a really important part of it um is like in this moment after we've seen Trump get defeated and, and like you said, like a lot of uh, like, I don't know what word to use, like normie churches, like they're not like the, the more progressive churches um, or anything like that. Just like your standard American churches, lots of them are starting to like see Christian nationalism for what it is and how it really has just infected and saturated, like almost every denomination in the country um and they're starting to push back against that which is awesome um and that's going to be a huge conversation uh going forward in christianity is how do we like sort of redeem like our entire religion because for people outside of christianity um like it's not a good perception of the religion um as a whole like most people like they see if like you do a word association association exercise with them with Christianity and like within 10 words, you know, they're going to have said conservative Republican Trump, you know, greed, um, greed, racism. Yeah. Yeah. Like all these things. So there's has to be a massive conversation of how do we like resolve that image? Um, how do we make things better? And a lot, I really like, I think it was Matt Chandler you were pointing to mm-hmm. said something along the lines of we have to look at how we're getting people to come into the faith. We can't like be scaring people into Christianity because um, it's again, it's not like a violent gun to the head coercion, but it is like a a violent like social coercion almost of like terrifying these people um, into joining your faith community. And because then that mentality of, uh, 
basically social coercion just carries on through through everything. This is this is what I always talk about with with the pure power state where people are wrestling for the gun of government and if I don't get it they're going to kill me. You know, it's it's the the idea that you know Democrats and Republicans vote out of self-protection from the other side. You know, there's a lot of Democrats who don't like Joe Biden that voted for Joe Biden because they feel that they're going to their lives are on the line if Donald Trump gets elected. And this voice encouraging this ideology continues. Their lives are in danger. And there's a lot of libertarians and conservatives that I see online that say, you know, well, we're all, you know, this cancel culture is a sign that we're being erased from polite society. And if we don't have Donald Trump defending us, then we're not going, we're not going to survive. We'll get, we'll get killed or, or lose our jobs or whatever. Right. So it's a lot of fear. And, you know, the, the, the Christian church plays a role and I see this, in, I mean, there's a lot of parallels of what you've just talked about with the libertarian movement. You talk about, like, when I go move through the pat-down audience, they're like, wait a minute, libertarians aren't racist? Uh, you know, I mean, there's, uh, there is a strong association with libertarianism with a lot of these ideas that we have just talked about. And so mm-hmm. there is, um, when I look at, uh, you know, I did an interview with a guy named Daniel Darling who wrote the... Um, the uh, Dignity Revolution, there's some things that I disagree with him on in, in that book, and there's a lot that I agree on, but like he's coming at it from a point of the dignity and protection of every human, no matter how small or how big or how you know non-utilitarian. Like we tend to take the Ayn Rand, and maybe you can talk about this, because we tend to view people as their worth is what's the first question you ask somebody what do you do for a living i need to yeah. judge your utility to this society to value your worth and christians take the exact opposite approach i want to take the marginalized person the woman who is a freak because she's been bleeding for 30 years or a leper walking up and touching the leper or mm-hmm. the man who has the crippled hand or the man who can't walk the lame the blind the sick the people that are unmarginalized outside of, of networks of power that have no ability to fend for themselves, those are the people that Christians ought to be defending and libertarians too. And instead, a lot of times, this ideology has them protecting networks of power and, and institutions that perpetuate abuse of the marginalized. Yeah, um, and I think so with the the Christianity aspect of that, I think a lot of that uh, does go back to, I guess, I think there's a lot of connection there to like free will theology. And don't get me wrong, like I'm all about free will. Like I I don't like Calvinism at all. I'm pure free willist. Um, But I think there is that idea of like, well, I, I, personally chose to be a christian i personally chose to accept jesus i personally individually chose to make all these choices that led to where i'm at so i think there's this tendency to look at people who are in worse situations than us when you come from that mentality and just say like well why don't they choose something that will be better and and sometimes that is the case you know like if somebody is like having trouble paying rent but they're also buying like $200 worth of cigarettes and alcohol a week, then okay, yeah, that's a choice. But it's, I don't think 
most of the time, like, it's not a matter of, like, oh, why don't they just choose to get a better job? It's the pull yourself up by the bootstraps. I mean, if you read Miss Pat's book, Rabbit, one of the best books I've ever read, Miss Pat didn't have the chance to pull herself up by her bootstraps. It took Mm -hmm. people in her life that had positions of privilege reaching out and saying, I see something in you, let me help you. I see worth in you. In in a life where most people didn't see her having worth, they said, I see worth and value in you. I'm going to help you. You know, now she's got a TV show and she's doing, you know, she's an amazing person. She didn't pull herself up by her bootstraps. She had people see her worth and dignity and mm-hmm. do things from their position to help her get to where she is. And if charity always starts at home and we're never reaching out to people who need help, then they stay in that same position. And that's sort of my, you know, the idea that, well, we have the big welfare state and so they can take care of them. I don't need to, I don't need to give charity. Charity starts at home. It's sort of like a crazy attitude and unchristian to me. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. And I think that's um, a problem with, uh, you know, people on the left and the right, um, you know, the left with the welfare state, the right with charity. um, And both of them tend to, view those different institutions welfare and charity as like these are like our great problem solvers like this is a good end state like i want a robust welfare state that's going to take care of everybody or i want robust private charities that are going to take care of everybody but i think as christians i think our our view should be a lot more uh bigger more transformative than that um more about like we should be making a world where a welfare state or charity aren't even needed. Um, like where nobody gets to this point of if they don't get help within two hours, they're going to be evicted, you know, um, or this person hasn't, they like these kids didn't have uh, lunch five times this week because their parents couldn't afford to feed them. Like it shouldn't be about, well, like how do we address these problems with welfare charity? It should be, how do we move past these problems, create a world where um, like we can stop these problems before welfare or charity are even needed. Um, how, do, how do you, how do you do that? You know, we don't advocate for state action here. I mean, how do you get to that place? <sighs> If I knew that, I would <laughs> be a best <laughs> best selling author. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, and and I think a lot of it, and I think this is another kind of again. And I I love Christianity. I am a Christian. I love the church, but and I think that's why I'm so hard on it. Is but I think that is a failing of the church. I think the church, uh, the church has a lot of roles as an institution, but I think one of those roles is was supposed to be well, like in the Book of Acts, like they were living like they set themselves up as an example of this can be the new economic and social and political order like like this is like a reality that you can have on earth um and the church is supposed to be an example of that and by example inviting people to become part of that new transformed reality um but and i think the church has really failed to uh provide that example to live in some ways because let me push back on you because i host now hear this and i talk to a lot of charities and i go to a church that is the largest uh food and clothing bank on the south side of indianapolis 12th largest Mm -hmm. city they have three impact centers in 
communities that need help. Uh, they, you know, when COVID hit and parents needed to go to work, they have a classroom set up in these impact centers that, you know, adults help them with their homework while there is online learning and parents can work, you know, paid $7 million in medical bills last year. Uh, when I, when I talk to the leaders of these nonprofits, they're often Christians. They're in these roles making a, a bum salary because they are wanting to make a difference. I think God's church is intimately involved in solving a lot of these peoples in private ways. It's just that that doesn't get the press nearly as much because a, they're not going to promote it because they're humble people. But then like, I've been trying to get my church on now hear this for like a year to talk about all the great stuff they do. And they just don't want to do it. Like they're not, it's, they don't want to talk about it. They feel that it's, you know, they're humble people. Like, you know, but there's millions of dollars. The church is debt free and all the offerings go out to minister to the community. You know, it's not, it's, it's like one of the best examples that we ought to promote, but we don't because we get stuck. Oh, well look at preacher sneakers and, uh, look at look at the five thousand dollars sweater that Stephen Furtick's wearing, or what? Mm-hmm. What about Ravi Zacharias? It's sort of like we have that same problem of like, there's a lot of good libertarians doing a lot of good work in the LP and elsewhere, but we're talking about these two podcasters fighting. You know, I mean, I, I, so I, I think that there is a tremendous, and maybe I'm just lucky because I live in a city that thrives on private institutions and limited government. Um, and which is a story that I am going to try and tell more articulately. Um, so I don't want to beat up on the church too much, but I do think that if everybody were more involved, I mean, the, the average giving is 2%, you know, mo- mm-hmm. Christians give 2% in like, there's some Barna study. Well, that's not, yeah. you know, if, if they gave 10%, I think it was in the dignity revolution. He talked about that. He's like, imagine if God's people gave hundreds of billions of dollars more. Yeah. Or to, what to was it in the, in the book of Acts? Um, every but from each according to their ability. Uh, no, no, that's your the... buddy, Mark. <laughs> you, um, you're not going to bamboozle me with your communism. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, and yeah, and I, again, like I am talking in generalities. There are a lot of churches out there that are doing really good things, um, and I, I think that's kind of part of that kind of shift that we're seeing now is a lot of churches over uh especially over the past like four or five years with trump um just have been kind of confronted with like the ugliness of some of the ideologies that they've supported or tolerated and have started to like find really good meaningful ways to shift away from that um and so i guess really the generalities don't work as well anymore since that shift is happening um, but I think, I, I still think overall, again, in general, I would, I would like to see, uh, these churches and just the church, like that concept, um, addressing these issues at a more, uh, systemic level, I guess. Imagine um, if we took the attitude that BLM protesters and immigrants are people to help and we develop private institutions to do so. As yes. opposed to being angry at the state for for picking up our slack or right, treating yeah. them like they're the enemy, I think it's a mindset shift that needs to take place uh, within our circles. For sure, and like, and there's 
and I think there's always, and I'm not just talking about other people like me too. I think there always needs to be this constant uh, self-reflection and like looking for hypocrisy in your own life. You know, like, I mean, it's the easy example, but if I'm going to, uh, you know, stand up and preach that you, we should be reaching out to BLM and stuff like that, then I can't also go and like, the next minute be like oh also come by the family life center friday so we can watch the new kevin sorbo movie where he fights antifa on his farm and you know um and so just recognizing uh things like that and just again i the church i think a lot of churches are making a good shift uh but they need to be pushed to continue that i think any form of leadership comes from the people that consent to said leadership. You know, mm-hmm. a pastor, if if a church changes, then a pastor adjusts. If a population changes, voters change, a government adjusts. Like mm-hmm. it, you know, it. we got to get away from the idea that, like, whatever side you're on, the other side is this all-powerful Borg intent on destruction and realize that we're not – we didn't get a chance to talk about it today on the big show, but it's something that I want to talk about is Randolph Bourne's distinction between government and the state. You know, and he talks about how yeah. the state is this all-powerful entity that wages war, and it's where people find meaning to, you know, war is uh, – Chris Hedges wrote this book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning – Versus government where the people who are governed consent to certain things being done or not done and, you know – there's a raucous debate about how that ought to be done. And most people are checking Mm -hmm. out of that debate and checking out of getting involved in local government. Like if you think the election was stolen, you can call your County clerk right now and volunteer to be a watcher in the next election. You can volunteer to be a judge. You can volunteer to work in one of those rooms that you think shenanigans was happening on. You can run for office and be a candidate on the ballot. You can participate in the government. A state doesn't allow that. You know that you are you are a functionary of this organ, or you are uh, you are an enemy of it, and so I think you know our shift in mentality needs to be: how can I personally, within whatever I have the ability to do, influence the people that have leadership over me, uh, mm-hmm. and start to change these things? But first, we must understand our principles, our first principles, our values, and have our own. And that's where I think individualism is important because an individual governs themselves and participates in their community. And this is the American system. What, what I think the last 60, 70, 80 years of libertarianism and its influence on the right has done through Ayn Rand and some others is we've kind of walked away from the Russell Kirk notions of community, Clinton Rossiter, and they lost that debate. Like, there's a great book called Buckley uh, by Carl T. Bogus that talks a lot about how the communitarians lost the debate with the libertarians, and Buckley made National Review and the Right a libertarian individualist institution along with Ayn Rand. Mm-hmm. There's some truth to that. Um, and I think that we have lost sight of the importance of community, Ryan. Like, I think we have to be active participants in our communities. Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, and yeah, I think individualism has been, you know, whatever you want to call it, like hyper individualism, whatever, it's been taken 
I th- I think two extremely unhealthy uh, extremes in pretty like all throughout America. Um, but there is a, an important role for it. Um, but I I think there has to be a blend of individualism and uh, what whatever you want communalism or you know individualism being, isn't I can do whatever the f I want without consequences. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think there should be this idea of, uh, you know, not like the state or the central organizing group like controlling you like, oh, we like X goal is good for the community. So you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to do this to contribute to that goal. But on an individual level, everybody thinking like not only what's best for me, but like individually, what can I do to help my community? Um, as a whole what and even if that comes at the extent like maybe even if it's something like as petty as oh i don't want to spend my saturday afternoon volunteering but it's good for my community so i'm going to give up what's individually good for me and go volunteer because it helps the community um and i think that's where the blend of individualism and like a uh community ethic kind of comes into play. Every person that ends up volunteering finds out how much more beneficial it, it was than spending time watching Blacklist on Saturday. Like, <laughs> I mean, it just, it when you actually participate and volunteer and you're engaged, it's just such a, it's a blessing, you know? And I think people are missing out on the opportunity to bless themselves with community and, uh, you know, being a little selfish. So, uh, but who am I to judge, Ryan? That's what I say. Who am I to judge? Yeah, hey, look as the, long as look you... At the, uh, look at my plank. As long as you judge yourself, too. It's like the little caveat. You can say whatever you want about others, but then just say, like, oh, but me, too. And then and then you're good. Yes, well, that's... no one judges <laughs> no one judges me more than me, that's for sure. Except maybe... Never mind. Uh, anyways, uh, Ryan, final <laughs> thoughts. I mean, what else You know, do you want to say to folks about this? Yeah. Um, and so I definitely do want to say, like, I made a point to emphasize like, no, like these Christian nationalists you're seeing, like they are Christians, like they're part of our Christian tradition and culture and everything. So we can't discount them. But at the same time, I, I want to make sure to point out like they are acting in very unchristian ways. Um, like just uh, so in the gospel, uh, Luke four, it says the gospel is good news to the poor. Uh, it's healing to the sick. It's liberating to the oppressed. Um, so, like, that's the gospel, and if you're looking at the Christian nationalist, that ideology, it's it's none of those things. It's definitely not good news to the poor. Uh, it's not healing to anybody, and it's more oppressing than anything. Um, so, I do want to make sure to point out, like, it's it's not a uh, n- it's not a Christian way that Christians are acting. And there's big. I know libertarians don't like to talk about Romans 13 a lot. It's a very contentious verse in libertarian circles um, where Paul's saying, like, you know, basically submit to the authorities. But it is in the Bible, so Christians have to address it. And there's nothing about what we saw on January 6th that in any way aligns with any interpretation of Romans 13. So – is throwing that out there. You're um, saying theft and violence aren't Christian and legal? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's I mean, something. it's and I know that uh, you hate the the uh, bipartisan comparison, but it, I, I I just think it's important for people that supported January 6th to look at it and go, "You've spent us, 
you spent all year telling us how bad Antifa is and how important property rights are, but then you're saying it is okay for these people to violate property rights and oh, but it's but it's public property. It's like you either follow laws or you don't because when right. it, it, like. <laughs> When it comes time for anarcho-capitalism to be enforced, I want to trust that you are going to follow the the a contract that we're making with each other. You know, it's like yeah. we have to model and model like the world that we want to see. And eventually, people go, "Oh, this peaceful person isn't advocating for Rittenhouse and the eighty second Airborne and the Capitol violence and like Aubrey being killed." You know, it's just like people don't want to be in a world with you if you look like you're not going to uphold your end of the bargain. Right. They see you as a threat. So how can we not be a threat? And the people that we feel are a threat, when they realize that we're not a threat, will start to de-escalate themselves because they trust you more. Right. Yeah, and I just have one one last thing I want to say, and it's about, it relates to January 6th, sort of, too. but and I, I this kind of really kind of flew under the radar because not a lot of people really care about the traditional Christian calendar in America. Um, but so there's on that calendar, uh, January sixth is actually a, a holiday called Epiphany. Mm. Um, are you familiar with Epiphany? Barely. Yeah. So it's actually so it's twelve days after Christmas, uh, and it symbolizes the time that like the three magi found Jesus and gave him the gifts and all. Um, and that's actually where the song uh, 12 Days of Christmas comes from, is mm. Christmas to Epiphany. Um, but anyway, so Epiphany, there's like all these rituals about it, uh, like like king cake, for instance. It's celebra- a lot of times in Latin America, and they bake this cake, and they'll actually like bake in this little Jesus figurine into it. And the thing is you all eat the cake together and try to find Christ in this unexpected place that's sort of the theme is like seeking christ in all the unexpected places um and we saw that in jesus's life you know it's like if you wanted to find jesus would you go to the temple or were you going to go to where all the poor uh you know divorced widows were at the well um that idea and so i i and i think it's kind of ironic and sad that what we saw on January 6th, like this Christian nationalist uprising happened on Epiphany. Um, because while there's Christian nationalists storming the Capitol chanting, you know, Christ is King. Um, it's that's like the exact opposite. That's almost, I guess the expected place where they expected to find Christ was in like the seat of power and like them, doing what they saw as the right thing their crusade um but i think it's important that no christ is in the unexpected places hidden away uh from those things um and so i think there's sort i i you know i again i don't believe in like super predestination everything but i think it's oddly fitting in some ways that that did happen on epiphany um and i just want to remind everybody that Christ was definitely not at that capital on that day. Ryan Lindsay, where can people find you? Where can they read you and follow your work? Uh, yeah, so I'm on face. My dogs are insane. That's okay. It's, um, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, you can barely <laughs> hear it. Oh, good. My, uh, so I'm on Facebook, uh, just Ryan Lindsay. I'm eating a big slice of pizza in my profile picture. Um, uh, I have uh, a Medium account where I write every once in a while uh it's just uh medium.com slash ryan e Lindsay. 
if you want to keep up with that. With an A or an E in Lindsay? Oh, E. L-I-N-D-S-E-Y. Okay. Um, the uh, Scottish way to spell it. I, think. <laughs> I will, And I'll put a link in the show notes, too, so people can grab it at the website. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's that's I, – I, I lurk in the in the walnuts group for as long as that's still on Facebook. Or you seem to have uh, like I don't know. Have you changed? Like you know, have you gone from like pre-election you were just on fire, like you know, lib sock, and now you seem like you've moderated a little bit. Have has has the last like I mean I know that the last four months for me has changed. The, the last year changed a lot of things and made me reevaluate a lot of stuff. But like the last two months, three months has made me go, uh, I need to rethink everything. <laughs> and I don't know. Yes. I, I get a different, I get a different tone from you in the last like month than maybe six months ago. Yeah, no, I think, um, well, I think everything with, I think especially COVID, uh, just made me realize like, obviously you know, libertarians don't want a lot of these government institutions to exist, but if they don't exist or if they don't function well and there's not suitable replacements, like lots of people can get hurt and die. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it, so it's emphasized the importance of institutions to me. Um, and then I think just the last, since the election and like Trump's whole efforts to, you know, overthrow the election and especially January 6th and everything just really, drove home to me like democracy is extremely fragile like you know benjamin franklin's quote about a republic like you have a republic if you can keep it and it's like i feel like everybody's kind of taken that for granted like no we're a democracy we're we're a republic like that's what we are it's what we always will be but it's like nope doesn't have to be that way so um yeah the the importance of institutions and democratic norms have really been driven home to me. Um, so I, I still consider myself like, you know, Libsock uh, and all, but definitely less of a, you know, burn it all down to the ground. I'm going to laugh. I'm <laughs> going to laugh uh, when you become a liberal democratic capitalist like myself. Uh, so it's going to be hilarious. I'm just someday you'll be a, a DSA or with me. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Ryan Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me here on the Chris Spangle show. Yep, thank you. Thanks, and we will talk to you soon. Recording.